Almost every presidential election cycle seems to see a Massachusetts candidate, or even two. And we claim a long list of firsts, from public schools and libraries to the sanctioning of same-sex marriage. But we're also the place where freewheeling debate in the legislature seems rare, and where women and people of color are still fighting for a foothold when it comes to representation in elected office. It's not easy to pigeonhole Massachusetts politics, but we're going to try today to understand it better in all its complexities. I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine. Today on the podcast, we're talking about a new book on the topic, The Politics of Massachusetts Exceptionalism, Reputation Meets Reality. We are joined by the book's editors, Gerald Duquette, an associate professor of political science at Central Connecticut State University, and Aaron O'Brien, an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for having us. It's great to be on the best name podcast in the land. Oh, well, with that, with that segue in, uh, uh, we, will, we will jump uh, into the, what is it, from the fish into the frying pan from the podcast. <laughs> So, so Aaron, let's just start uh, start by helping us understand what's the thinking behind this book and and uh, its framing by by this title around Massachusetts exceptionalism. Sure. Well, the group of scholars we assembled all care quite a bit about Massachusetts politics and having you know an analytic take, a scholarly take. We have the uh, advantage of not the type timelines that you guys in journalism do, but we have slightly different reads uh, about Massachusetts politics. Indeed, you know we have some good fiery uh, discussions amongst us, and we thought you know the organizing theme around Massachusetts exceptionalism. Um, can link all these deep dives into Massachusetts politics and show that what that scholars can disagree slightly on how exceptional Massachusetts is. And a lot of it has to do of where you're looking. It's not that Massachusetts is or is not exceptional. It depends on where your focus is. So we thought this book could actually add to the discourse by um, instead of just sounding off, Democrats think this, Republicans like think like that. Uh, we said, let's do a scholarly treatment that's readable. And we managed to do both. <laughs> well, that's great. And a great way to sort of frame it. And um... Gerald, help sort of understand um, maybe sort of the roots of the of this framing around Massachusetts exceptionalism. I mean, it, it seems like it sort of starts with this this idea that we certainly are, uh, you know, central to a lot of the, you know, kind of uh, uh, original themes and foundations of the country. So it's sort of, you know, there's some basis for a little bit of uh, self-regard, you might say based on that, uh, those historical roots. Yeah, well, I mean, it, when it comes to being arrogant about politics, we, Massachusetts has seniority, right? So- <laughs> There you go. Uh, one of the, uh, one of the uh, elements of it that really helped make exceptionalism a really useful anchor uh, was the reality that um, the institutional development of Massachusetts uh, government and politics is uh, really actually so clearly different than the national government or many other states. And the difference is unique in that it's almost as if Massachusetts has developed institutionally the way you, we sort of assume the framers of the US Constitution wanted the United States to develop. So that, that makes it sort of an interesting uh, case study, not just in terms of state politics, but in terms of American politics in general. And so you're making it sound like uh, we were, we sort of set the model or we're on the right track that uh, things got a little off the rails, maybe nationally. What is it that, that, that uh, 
we were doing right or the framers here had in mind that distinguishes us from how things developed more broadly? Sure. And I don't know if we got it right, but we got it right. And that presumes that the framers sort of got it right, I suppose. But the idea is that the Madisonian notion of separation of powers based on it, you know, co-equal branches, we have essentially much more co-equal branches. Uh, they, you know, we don't have a left-right partisan debate of any real substance uh, in Massachusetts. What we have is an establishment versus a sort of insurgency or an insider versus outsider uh, take. So the Massachusetts politics looks, you know, by comparison, very stable. And of course, that stability has some uh, very significant pros and cons. So talk a little, a little about that, because I, I really was struck in in the book and the various chapters by that theme of for all the talk you know we like to say that politics is a blood sport here or you know there's talk about the rough and tumble of you know big city politics you know it's often associated with big east coast cities right we think of new york or boston or maybe moving a little more west chicago but but i'm struck that really in 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 boston at least in the decades i've been here and it came through in your book that that we're not really a place of that kind of rancor or, or uh, those kind of battles, uh, why why is that? And uh, and let's talk a little about you know how that's maybe both for the good and 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 maybe some not for good. Um, so the 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 fact that we our politics you know political scientists like to talk about political cleavages in order to orient ourselves to understanding you know who's up and who's down. How does politics change? And in the in uh, in the United States, obviously politics has traditionally been essentially a left-right thing. But in Massachusetts, it's almost never really been that uh, because we have never really had a competitive two-party system. There were a few decades in the middle of the 20th century where we had a fairly competitive party system. But for the most part, Massachusetts has been a one-party or if you like, a no-party kind of a politics. And that has allowed Massachusetts politics to be more organically, the, the cleavage to be more organic. And the more organic cleavages, insiders, outsiders, haves, have nots, right? Establishment and folks who are pushing against the establishment. So there's a, and a, there's a broad, long history of that happening in Massachusetts, even though it wasn't really developing that way in the United States, it wasn't really developing that way in, uh, in other states. So the question for us is, you know, why is that? Uh, and we talk a lot about that, but we also talk a lot about, you know, the difference between whether that our version of creating stability is a net positive or not. Right. And that's where we see different perspectives. Right. Uh, I grew up in Massachusetts. Uh, you know, I, you know, my grandfather was a worked for John Kennedy. You know, we've got all that sort of uh, steeped in Massachusetts history. Uh, uh, obviously, Erin is from another state and she's coming to this with a different scholarly and even methodological perspective. So our goal was to address that kind of thing, address that kind of reputation as objectively and as uh, from as many perspectives as we could. And to that question of different perspectives and uh, the cons of that stability, you know, I can think of four quick examples from the book. Uh, Shannon Jenkins, who's at uh, UMass uh, Dartmouth, um, she examines uh, the state legislature and talks about uh, the, the commonality of corruption. Um, I've got two chapters, one that talks about voter access. There actually has been real improvement in Massachusetts. But, um, you know, for a long time, we made it hard to vote. We made it hard to vote because the people who got elected by those procedures don't want to change them. 
and there's no party competition in Massachusetts. So what's the incentive to change? Electing women, we are um, middle of the pack of the 50 states and last in New England. Um, uh, Luis Jimenez, a colleague of mine at UMass Boston, he examines the Latinx experience and how slow the you know, all uh, Latinx population writ large and different demographic groups just have had a very hard time being incorporated into politics, as well as wealth and income inequality and housing. Uh, uh, Mo Cunningham and Peter Ubertaccio look like uh, look at ballots uh, and initiatives and referendums, and uh, the way that has circumvented. And Gerald looks at this too has circumvented uh, the will of the people, et cetera, et cetera. Places for dark money. So uh, it's not all bad news, I swear, in our book. But that stability that Gerald talked about many of the positives. He's not wrong. Um, but you asked about the cons. Those are some of the cons as well. Um, uh, th there's not an impetus to change in Massachusetts when you've got one party in control and parties only look outside itself when they fear losing at the polls. And Democrats don't fear that except for the governor's office in Massachusetts. And so uh, let's talk a little about this issue about the legislature and the governor's office, because that's a that that just runs through a lot of the different chapters of the book. And it's such a unusual phenomenon that we've got. Um, you Might know, say exceptional. Ex there you go. And, you know, and so as most people know, we've had, I don't know, you guys maybe have the numbers at your, uh, at the ready, but we've had, you know, Republican governors for, you know, the good, good chunk of the, of the time since what, since 1990, at least we've had just one uh, two-term Democrat, Deval Patrick. Uh, but talk a little bit about why that is. And in fact, although we're dating that from 1990, it, a lot of it seems to have to do with the guy who came just before that, uh, uh, Michael Dukakis, and the kind of model uh, or the kind of pivot that seemed to occur in the state's politics, you know, as he came sort of a political age in the 60s and then was elected in the 70s. Right. Uh, Governor Dukakis is, a, is, a, is definitely a pivotal actor in understanding Massachusetts politics. Uh, when he came into the legislature and was moving up the political career ladder, he was a firebrand progressive, uh, right? And, and he, you know, played that part. Uh, when he was elected governor as a progressive, his first term in office was a bit of an eye-opener for Governor Dukakis. And he has told this to many people many times. He kind of learned that, you know, being the governor uh, doesn't doesn't allow you to be the, the policy maker in chief. He came to the realization that, uh, you know, as, as, as important as his progressive priorities uh, were, you know, whether they were, you know, clean government transparency or particular policies, uh, there's no getting around the fact that politics uh, is played at a high level. There are stakeholders with a great deal of influence who are not going to be shamed into reducing their influence. And he essentially talks about the fact that having lost his re-election, his re-nomination bid, in fact, uh, he spent the next four years in the wilderness, if you will, coming to grips with the what I have often referred to as a very a clashing political culture in the state between sort of the good government reform folks who tend to be either outsiders or insurgents uh, and the establishment folks who tend to, to who tend to look on the stability of government as the ultimate virtue and therefore are able to defend the establishment by virtue of stability and so he came to the conclusion that he had to be both uh, you know a, a, a strong policy advocate and progressive you know champion but he also had to be a good politician he had to actually make sure that he 
he got buy-in from all the stakeholders who had influence. Whether their influence was something we want them to have or not, you can't dismiss the real influence of influential stakeholders. And, and so Mike Dukakis uh, really brought that uh, sort of I, I want to say centrist, but it's really the wrong word. He brought that sort of practical uh, marriage of policy and politics that I think every governor after him has benefited greatly from. And you know, Michael, um, I would say Gerald makes this case in his um, chapter on the governor. I, I learned from a book I co-edited, which is always a good sign. Yeah. You know, I didn't really buy this hypothesis that um, the state legislature has a preference for Republican governors. And I think Gerald's chapter on uh, including an interview with Michael Dukakis really makes that case effectively. And he touched on it, but I, I wanna punctuate it because it's, it's that old guard, those insiders, if they have a governor of the other party, um, they've got a wink nod for not getting anything done. Right. Uh, if you control uh, all the levers of government, then, hey, you have to act like Democrats. So I, I think um, Gerald makes this case effectively in his chapter. And lo and behold, the scholarly treatment convinced me. Uh, I think he's right. And and so we've seen that play out. And, and I think you're to your point, Gerald, that the governors we've seen in the last several decades have been both kind of, you know, had a policy view or maybe um fit that that mold. Yeah, I was going to say that mold that you all talk about in, 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 in some of the chapters talk about the different, the typology, the kind of manager, uh, 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 managerial uh, focus, which is very much aligns with this idea too, that the center of political gravity kind of shifted more to the suburbs uh, in, in the state. And Dukakis certainly was kind of, you know, really the, was emblematic of that. But, but that they sort of play politics. And it seems that still is true today. I mean, Charlie Baker, you know, like we like to say, he's kind of the, you know, he was kind of the whiz kid under Governor uh, Bill Weld. He's now kind of the seasoned manager type. But, um, but he certainly plays the political game. Again, sort of people would say maybe for better or worse. I mean, I'm sort of thinking for all the talk about his kind of just focus on on managerial chops, you know, he's sort of gotten into where he's gotten into trouble is sometimes has been, you know, the politics, like even out in Western Mass, the whole debacle over the soldier's home there. And the fact that patronage hiring, you know, has certainly not been, a, you know, a foreign thing under under the Baker administration, just as it occurred under, you know, every governor. Right. Well, there's no no governor is going to change the patronage politics of Massachusetts. And if they try real hard, it's going to ruin the rest of their agenda. Right. I mean, the idea in, in Massachusetts is there's a big three. Right. There's a there are the two chiefs of the legislative chambers and the governor. And that means he's basically outvoted in the in the only vote that ends up counting when you're talking about setting the agenda. Yeah. But, you know, as our chapter on political parties points out, uh, Charlie Baker's not running again. And one of the main reasons he's not running again is his party has abandoned him on um, that uh, the Massachusetts GOP and uh, under Jeff Deal and others has become wildly Trumpy. It's not clear that Charlie Baker could have gotten through his own primary. I'm, a I'm actually someone who thinks he he's one of the few. It's bad advice. Don't run as an independent. But I actually think Charlie Baker could have. 
but yes, he's played the political game and he's, um, you know, slapped the backs and he's worked with the Democratic legislature and he's done patronage politics, to your point, Michael, sometimes um, not so well. Uh, he had some hiccups during COVID, but nonetheless, he's wildly popular and his own party is a major impediment to him running again. It's not the only reason he's not running again, but the party has left him. I would add uh, with Charlie's, uh, Charlie Baker's decision not to run again uh, was probably the, one of the first times in my memory that a politician's excuse for not running was 100% true in my view. He said <laughs> something to the effect of, I wanna focus on accomplishing my goals over the next year. Now, I, I, I think that's exactly right because had he decided to run, the legislative leadership would kind of have no choice but to become more adversarial they'd be getting pushed from their left to do so. So I think he actually is one of those guys who was sincere, and I think he was right, in saying that his relationship to the legislature, which actually showed some somewhat mild signs of tension in the last couple of years with COVID, et cetera, uh, actually was the right reason for him not to run again. And he didn't want to implement Trump policies. I mean, think, uh, you know, with the um, SCOTUS sort of decision, the Alito opinion that's been leaked, you know, Charlie Baker came out, even though he vetoed the Roe Act prior, he came out and said, this is a place, uh, Massachusetts is a place that will be safe um, for uh, women's health and women's health care. If he's running in a Republican primary, one, the institution GOP, not necessarily the voters, but the institution GOP is pro-life and is very much behind that opinion. He would have had the concern of what he thinks is best in policy and what policy would allow him to win in a GOP primary. It'll be interesting to see what he does on the immigrant's license. Uh, yeah. mm. Right. So can you, can you both talk a little bit about this issue about, which strikes me as sort of process versus product. It sort of strikes me that, you know, we look at a lot of the, um, uh, you know, the firsts in the states or, or ways that we've led on policy things, but, but then on processes, we've talked about, you know, the state house is a pretty opaque place. You know, we're constantly hearing about, um, you know, about the resistance to, uh, you know, changing uh, their, that them being subject to the public records law. There's all sorts of ways that they, they sort of operate on their own behind closed doors, but then generally eventually come out with, with products, legislation that kind of seems to point sort of toward progress or, or, or in some way, but there's a real disconnect between sort of how they go about it and what they, what they end up with. And, and just speak a little to that. And also I was struck that at one point, uh, I think in, in the, one of the chapters by Shannon Jenkins, your colleague from, uh, from UMass Dartmouth, she talked about a sense that we maybe are losing a little bit of our mojo around kind of being such a leader on, on policy issues. And, and I don't know if you have thoughts on what that, what that could uh, be attributable to, or or at some point does our being kind of a laggard on the way we go about things catch up with us and and begin to affect what we actually get done? I think I'm going to jump in and say I think Massachusetts is a little bit like the uh, you know the high school quarterback <laughs> who still talked about being the high school quarterback at the 20 year reunion, the 25 year reunion at the bar on a random Ooh, Tuesday. And we, and we all know that guy, Aaron. Yes, we not a do. Pretty, uh, picture. <laughs> <laughs> and I think Massachusetts is a little bit like that. Shannon I, does not use that metaphor. I won't put those <laughs> words in her mouth. But that, uh, you know, when uh, um, civil unions, abolition, when you're referencing the past, 
It is what's going on. What's our product now? And I think that's where that insider, outsider, and lack of transparency uh, is most visible. Uh, the outsiders are running because they don't like politics as usual, and they don't think the product of Beacon Hill is progressive. Um, they think it's um, neoliberal Democrats. They think it's way too conservative Democrats, way too moderate Democrats. And so uh, what's being questioned, uh, it, these have always been questions in Massachusetts, but the outsiders are finally winning more consistently and they're pushing. I mean, look at Sonia Chang Diaz right now, refusing to drop out of the race because she's saying we're not doing good enough. Healy's doing some of that as well. So um, that sort of business as usual as the insider's lack of transparency is now being linked to policy that many in the state view as too moderate. Yeah, the, uh, the thing that comes to mind is the fact that uh, it is an insider-outsider game. And I would have to say, despite some progress from uh, you know, progressive insurgents, it's, um, it's still an insider-outsider game. And, and even when you try to discern what's progress from an outsider, as opposed to what's just sort of a generational replacement among insiders, that's actually an interesting question we could talk about. But I, I want to point out that there um, a lot of folks have argued uh, uh, in the pages of your of Commonwealth magazine, in fact, ab about the you know, sort of the transparency uh, uh, debate, right? And you um, uh, UMass colleague, and I, he's going to kill me, his name just jumped out of my head, but arguing that the, the reality is that the what we're seeing is incrementalism. And what we're seeing is incrementalism at work in policymaking. And some would have to, would argue the incrementalism has virtue as a stability kind of a thing. And the ability to uh, sort of uh, prevent uh, the kind of transparency and the kind of openness also serves to prevent a lot of the rancor, a lot of the disinformation, a lot of the you know more le the, the less manageable elements of politics. So there, this is actually an interesting part of how we can say it's a double-sided coin or double-edged sword, right? They they get things done, and they don't get them done. Uh, as fast as some want, they don't get them done as completely as others want. However, it looks like they get them done in ways that the average voter is actually pretty good with. Yeah, no, I think that 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 captures that that sort of split there pretty well. Now, um, we're we're talking about a lot of the current themes, but I want to just ask quickly a little bit, reaching back to uh, kind of early early Massachusetts history, because this is something that, uh, that, that comes up throughout your book, and that is this reference to John Winthrop and the, and the whole city on a hill. Um, and, 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 you know, you talk about that as kind of, again, one of the sort of animating sort of themes or inspirations for this idea about exceptionalism. Um, you, you then jump ahead a couple of centuries to JFK, uh, talking in a, in a famous speech about, you know, uh, the quote is, we do not uh, um, imitate for we are a model to others. Um, but one thing I'm interested in, and again, I don't without getting too far into the, into the ancient history, we had a great essay a couple of years ago um, by a writer here in Boston on a book that came out uh, on the Winthrop famous speech. And, and, and that book and the essay talked about how people have largely gotten it wrong and that, uh, you know, that, that it wasn't that we will be a city on a hill, but the key word is we shall be as a city on a hill. 
And, and the idea was that we would be exposed, we would be vulnerable, and we would be there to be judged. And so there's a real kind of fine line between sort of hubris or humility is it that we're going to be this model, as JFK said, where we, we always are blazing the trail and right, are right, or are we going to sort of be there, you know, for all to see for our warts and, and sort of to sort of, you know, be exposed? That actually, uh, that makes, that works exactly as we thought it would work in the sense that for us, it's just an origin story, right? And so as, because we're political scientists, we're not historians, right? But the but it works as, a, as a, a, an origin story. And of course, as is crucial in that respect, right? That, right. in other words, it's crucial because we're, we're basically saying throughout the book, this is just a thing that has repeatedly been used in reference to Massachusetts politics by both people within it and people without it. So, you know, it, it almost is, you know, it doesn't even matter. The book you're referencing is a good one and, and, a, and it's a, certainly a sound thesis, but for our purposes, it's not a, a relevant thesis in that it's, it's an issue, right? It's something, the reason that you could write such a book and it would be interesting is because it's an issue. And so for us, it served as an origin story and a really useful way to prov provide historical context. And I'll say it slightly differently. I haven't read that essay uh, in the magazine, but the misinterpretation's the story for us, right? Because right? that's what people have globbed onto. That's what everybody has quoted since. You know, I used this book amongst some graduate students. They did not buy it. They had an electronic copy. I'm not that <laughs> professor. Um, and um, it's a diverse class. And they, the first thing, uh, the first three comments were about, you know, I write in there, John Winthrop was central. He was integral to bringing slavery to the colonies. Right. I, uh, that part, I didn't learn that part. I, I don't think uh, uh, Massachusetts students are, are taught that. Hopefully they are now, but that's not part of it. But, you know, Michael, to your question, the misinterpretation, maybe Winthrop meant, you know, your warts are exposed that, but Massachusetts tellingly why our book right. works, right. understood it as look at us, be <laughs> like us. Um, and it's special here, it's different here. And that specialness and that difference is related to community policy and government. You know, uh, we talk about other states do understand themselves as exceptional, um, but they don't link it to policy, governance, and intellectualism the way Massachusetts does. And do you think um, it's always dangerous to sort of peer ahead and see where we're heading, or or think we we know? But there was a lot of references to some of the changes in our political makeup and who's getting elected not just sort of the demographics of, you know, more representation of women and people of color, but, but you know, how they're getting elected, whether they come more out of that kind of insurgent outsider group um, is the kind of old order, uh, you know, breaking down in any way um, or, 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 or will, will these folks sort of accommodate themselves to it and just be the new face of, of what we've, what we've long understood to be kind of how, Massachusetts exceptionalism plays out here. It is breaking down. I, and this, I'll take this one, Joe, because just because you know I love this uh, conversation. But yes, that old order is breaking down. Um, Mel King, I mean, there's been challenges to the old order for a long time. Sam Yoon, uh, more recently. And, you know, Sam Yoon, as we talk about, was run out of town. 
Um, and I think the most emblematic of this is look at the Boston mayor's race. Boston, as we're very careful to say in the book, is not a synonym for Massachusetts, even though that's part of the culture that we also talk about. Right. But in mass or in that Boston mayoral race, four years ago, even. Um, if it was five candidates of color, four of them who are women, a white guy, a white Democrat guy would have gotten that race in a heartbeat because he would have said, I have a lane, right? For the first time, he would now pay electorally. Um, he would have to explain how he's offering something different. And tellingly, none of them jumped in. So challenge to the old order isn't new. What's new is successful challenge to the old order. You know, um, uh, on the backs of Mel King, on the backs of Sam Yoon, uh, goes uh, Michelle Wu as she talks about. Uh, Ayanna Presley wasn't the first, but she broke open the gates because she won. And for the first time, people could run from outside the insiders of the Democratic Party and win. So yes, I, I do think it's changing. Gerald might have a slightly different view, but I do think it's changing. I don't think the old guard is just reinventing itself. They understand themselves as losing power. Gerald, I don't know if you agree with that thesis. Well, I never disagree with Aaron, first of all. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a fool's errand. But uh, I would say that the question for looking ahead is, and it's a future question, what, what, how will there be accommodation and to what degree will there be accommodation, right? So we have a very top down, you know, state house, right? Uh, tellingly, we're seeing the, some positives from in terms of uh, insurgent success at, at, the, uh, at the local level, right? And in lo among local constituencies, but I'm not sure that they're, uh, you know, folks at the state house are, are quaking in their boots at this point. It is certainly un in inescapable that change is afoot. We just aren't, it's not clear yet whether we are going to have different people, same story, or uh, different people, different story. I think we really do have to wait and see a little bit on that. I guess we'll leave it there. The future is coming, but we haven't seen it yet, right? Uh, it's you not got here to write yet. the second edition of the book. There you go. Okay. I, I, I was just saying, we're not historians and we're not psychics. <laughs> but we'd, we'd be you a said, lot more wealth if we were. You said somewhere between the two. Uh, yeah. That's right. All right. Well, listen, this has been a great conversation and uh, it's a great book. If, if folks want to want to dig in to this in, in great detail and depth. It's called The Politics of Massachusetts Exceptionalism, Reputation Meets Reality. And we've been talking to its editors, Gerald Duquette and Aaron O'Brien. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. And I just want to mention, we couldn't have written as nearly as good a book without Commonwealth Magazine. Sure. We all relied very heavily on your excellent work over many years. Oh, thank you, Gerald. Your, your retainer checks in the mail. And uh, <laughs> we were literally talking, Gerald and I talked maybe half an hour ago, and we were really saying, you know, the local journalism is what allowed us to do a lot of these uh, deep dives. And he, exceptional. He, exceptional. Well, we appreciate that. Well, thanks again uh, to you both. And thank you all for listening to another episode of the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. We'll see you next week.